Welcome to Gallybega podcast number 11, where soon you'll hear Skeeler and Charybdis, a short story by Adam Biles. It's almost four years since we published Adam's novel Feeding Time, but I've been thinking about it a lot during the lockdown here in the UK. That's because Feeding Time is set in an old people's home, a care home, as they're being called in the British press at the moment, which is agonisingly ironic because our government so clearly don't give a stuff about these homes or the people in them. They haven't been given the PPE they need. They haven't been given the guidance they need. Astonishingly, it was weeks into the epidemic before they were even told to stop receiving visitors. It's complicated, the government tried to claim when their carelessness was pointed out to them. People in the homes depend on visits. Not as much, I would suggest, as they depend on being able to breathe. But these thoughts are too awful. As I speak now, there are still probably thousands of people in homes around the UK and their suffering is too much to contemplate. As I struggle to get these useless, ineffectual words out, there are people up and down the country, well again, it's too much. And we are, I'm afraid, only at the beginning of understanding what has happened. But we need to face up to it. We need to admit this horror. We need to recognise that these are humans that have been forgotten and abandoned in the worst possible way. And for me, feeding time has been a way into that because the people Adam Biles describes in Green Oaks residential care home are so alive and they're so deserving of life. They have so much life to give. They are humans who deserve love not callous Tory incompetence, not this. Anyway, it's a wonderful book. It's always felt important to me and it feels even more vital now. Please read it and do it now when it matters if you can bear it. Although on that note and after that brutal introduction, I should also say that Feeding Time is hilariously funny and life-affirming. There is still room for joy in the world. And you can get a flavour of that in this early story from Adam, which previews some of the characters from Feeding Time and some of the ideas, and is, in itself, as you're about to hear, wonderful. Here's Adam. Hello again. This is Adam Biles, author of the Galley Beggar Press novel Feeding Time, speaking to you from Paris on the 29th of April 2020. Today I'm going to read the first short story I ever completed, And, unlike much, indeed most, of what I wrote between this and Feeding Time, I'm actually still rather fond of it. Except for the title, which almost 20 years later I find distracting and pretentious, but I don't really have the energy after six and a half weeks in lockdown to get into a scrap about it with my younger self. This story may be of particular interest to Gallybegger Press aficionados, because not only does the protagonist, Edna Savage, make a fleeting cameo in Feeding Time, but it also features the first appearance of Green Oaks, although here it's a rather innocuous block of carer-assisted flats, and not the nightmarish retirement home it would later become. Here goes. Scylla and Charybdis, an obituary. Edna Savage died last week, a frustrated clench of her brown paper hands being her last action, and Christopher being her last words. Her hands didn't rustle when she clenched them, although they seemed as though they should, the skin brittle and taut, translucent like a damp parcel. 
skin that waxed and waned with the movements of her pencil bones and blue licorice veins, that could be seen some days worse than others, the struggle to remain a creature of substance having long been underway. Savage. She had never appreciated the connotations of her husband's surname, not seeing why an historic blood tie of his should besmirch her reputation, and after his death had reverted to Miller, her father's name for casual correspondence. Yet she was legally savage. It said so on the white plastic bottle of sulfasalicine prescribed for her arthritis that she kept on the mantelpiece behind the stuffed leather Peruvian frog, a gift from Anna from across the hall. The frog was ugly, bloated, and too satisfied for something cobbled together from a cow's arse, with a smile stitched in twine that bristled with dangerous secrets. Although something she would never admit, Edna behaved impeccably when in the presence of the frog, when reflected in his convex glass button eye like a fish trapped in a bowl. He brought her discomfort, yet she kept him there to the end, and not just to appease Anna, who had been dead near four months, but to conceal her medication, to keep it near to hand but hidden, at least all but a peak of it. The peak was important, an advert for her silent martyrdom. The frog also bore a passing resemblance to Lloyd Savage, her long-dead spouse, although this similarity never occurred to Edna. Also on the mantelpiece, to the right, Lloyd the frog being to the left, was a small wooden frame, chipped gold-painted wood, plastic instead of glass, and inside the frame was Christopher. Was me. The photograph had been taken during that summer, when shorts were worn long, like football players as Edna remembered them, and t-shirts came with words stenciled onto them by a graffiti artist that was really a machine. Anna had never had grandchildren, perhaps never children, and was a little too keen, almost desperate as Edna would have it, for any slither of news about me. My mother also interested her, and she allied herself with Edna on that one. What did you do to deserve this daughter? My extended absence was excused. I was, after all, young, busy, and even a card at Christmas was enough. But for a daughter not to visit her own mother, her own sick mother, that was inexcusable. Except that photo couldn't have been taken in the summer because the catalogue business always works one season ahead. Although the designers would joke that they really worked one season behind. So that it must have been taken in December. And maybe I do remember that day, sunny though it was, being cold, biting with winter. The photographer was small, dark-haired and cute, with that downy moustache so many women tear out at the follicles, right at the root, shimmering with its own proud coating of frost. Caught at the right angle, it made her look like a stern toy general, somehow beautiful. That was one of my last jobs. Edna would never have told Anna about how it had ended about how my jawline, or perhaps my brow, it's difficult to remember, had been only capriciously pretty and would give me only one season's work. And besides, I got fat and could never faux smile with the instinct of some of the peacocks that I worked with. She would never have told Anna because Anna simply didn't need to know. How often now, it seemed to Edna, the distinction between want and need became confused and with such ugly consequences. But Anna would ask... All these questions, Christopher, why won't she let it alone? About why there was only one photo. And Edna would dismiss her with a reason too complex, too well-crafted to be untrue. 
she accepted this interrogation from one less blessed and less fruitful than herself, in the manner she imagined Jesus might had he been a resident of Green Oak's carer-assisted apartments. Indeed, she was satisfied for the most part that Jesus wouldn't have acted very differently, although he didn't have any grandchildren either. The photo wasn't even a print, wasn't one of the 10 by 8 glossies they'd send you as a record of the shoot, but was cut straight from the catalogue. Edna had been surprised to discover her Christopher on page 498, and, cupping the book in those hands, it laid heavy in them and flopped open like a dead pigeon, had lifted it unthinkingly to the mantelpiece, to Lloyd's misty brown beads. Yes, you do know Lloyd, our grandson, Christopher, Mary's boy. I'll get a frame for it tomorrow. Edna was meticulous. She'd been at Green Oaks almost a year before she was satisfied that the rumour she'd put about, that she was staggeringly beautiful as a girl, and that really you could see it if you watched the way she moved, even now, such care for her appearance, such a fine posture, had wound itself into the fissures of the virulent clique that always exists in a place like this, and pried it open enough for her to snuggle down like a snake amidst. A meticulous nature was necessary, not only to oil the mechanics of her rumour, which besides wasn't untrue, but also because a meticulous nature in old age, to Edna, could be seen as nothing but the hangover of a meticulous beauty in youth. Botherless beauty was a modern invention. Potentially elegant young women parading in car mechanics denims and the blouses of grubby gypsy children, selling themselves so tragically short. It made no sense, and as far as Edna could see, wasn't worth the effort it took. So Edna was meticulous with my picture, using the scissors that before would cut her toenails until she suddenly couldn't bend down enough and had to ask Kevin, the nurse, to cut them for her. And he had his own scissors, industrial strength, somehow menacing like a small silver crocodile that seemed to gloat before each bite. Snip. She first cut the page clean away from the spine. My legs had been spliced with the Reebok logo, so Edna could do nothing but cut straight across my thighs. A dissatisfying cut that made me look stumpy and disproportionately built, as though I ended where the picture did, as though I had asked the photographer to just once not let on about the accident with my legs. The sky above my head, blue, empty, save for a gull that might have been a fleck of dirt on the lens, gave her room for experimentation, but it worked best as she had expected. Six by four, the golden rectangle, almost. I suppose I might have given Edna the portfolio print, but it wasn't that simple. The toy general had sent it with, call me if you like, dappled lightly with a nervous pencil on the back. And although I could have copied the phone number, there was something I liked about the way she wrote her L's. The loop almost too wide so that it could be an O if you wanted to pick holes. I couldn't call, but it was a nice souvenir. Besides, I didn't know Edna's address. I had never met my grandmother, Neither of my grandmothers. My father's mother had died three years before I was born, shot through with a cancer that had begun in her stomach, but had got greedy as they always do, and had taken her bowel and bladder for seconds. My mother's mother died in childbirth, not with my mother, but with her younger sister, an aunt who I barely knew, but whose big head and brattish face couldn't help but make you think she'd buried her on purpose as some kind of advanced retribution for her disenchanted life. I'd never met Edna either, but I couldn't see why she didn't have as much claim to me as these other strangers. Sure, there was blood, but whenever I've seen blood, it's always been pretty messy, languid and menacing, and it always stains. 
Whatever it was that made her cut me out and call me Christopher, frame me and introduce me to the other residents as a grandson didn't seem important. There was a purity to it all that couldn't be sullied. Like any relationship, grandmother to grandson, but bleached out under intense, white, penetrating lights. All words left spiralling inaudible beneath some kind of celestial hum, like listening to your heartbeat underwater, a piece of sorts. Yet in the four months since Anna had died, my importance had dwindled. None of Edna's other friends seemed to ask, burdened as they were with vigorous broods who enriched them with so many true stories that even Edna's bullish imagination couldn't keep pace. When she decided that Mary, her daughter, my mother, was to be a disappointment, bad children having a wider scope than good, twice as much conversational currency at least, and besides a perfect family like that Madeline's two floors below, with their college educations and regular visits are just a pain in the you-know-what, excuse my language, Edna had hoped this might see her through. Small but interesting was the safest path. But now, how much she missed Anna. Sweet, barren Anna. She missed her stupidity, her dim manner that furnished her with a wish to merely get by in the world and not to understand it, that made her say things like, I took to it like a fish out of water, and not realised that her brain had just played a joke. Edna couldn't help but think of her as a conspiracy of competing limbs, drawn together and forced to make it work, although each with its own agenda. And she was so dear. She would buy the kind of present that Edna would have bought as a joke, as an act of malice to make the recipient feel as though they were sat on an awkward chair but didn't want to say, and would give them with such sincerity that when you looked at them, they weren't really as bad as all that, were they? Although most of all, she missed Anna's hunger for the word. Her ceaseless probing that had, at times, seemed riddled with mistrust, but that after her death and the taunting empty pews at her funeral seemed infinitely more sincere, as though I, as though Christopher, really meant something to her as well. But she died. She died of an aortic aneurysm that no one could have seen coming, so the doctors said. She died sometime during the same week that I had crashed my car into the front wall of the house that belonged to the mother of the toy general, who had telephoned me later that same day to ask if I would like to go for a drink and to say that she had got my number from her mother and she hoped I didn't mind. Had Edna not married me off at 24, the same age she'd married, Lloyd was 26, this would have been the news she'd itched for, her, Christopher, meeting a girl. But she had set this eventuality in the current long ago. It had bobbed and curled into engagement and braved the eddies of minor marital strife. Since Anna had died, it felt as though I, as a source of news, had long washed out to sea. It was sad in a way, because it meant that Edna had missed out. Missed out on the way the general's dress kinked above her hip, somehow born of her nerves when she walked. Missed out on the long, faded dyes that had left their trace, as a kind of biography of this woman until now, in her choppy black hair. And the way the mist from the beer, after she'd taken a sip, glinted for a second on those hairs that really weren't as long as I'd thought. She'd missed out on knees purposely brushed under the table, that set four hands loose from an unnatural interest in the dynamics of the beer tumblers onto shoulders, then legs, then faces. She'd missed out on the kiss that had included teeth just as it had when at fourteen it was all new and as big as the world. She'd missed out on the slow walk to a house that the general shared with a journalist who should have worked me up into something but just didn't. And she missed out on us naked, lost in each other, 
not slick, smooth and cold as the films dictate, but clumsy, fleshy and damp, hanging funny and vanquished in a fug that should have smelt bad, but which we drew in with ever deeper gasps. Although, maybe that isn't the kind of thing you tell your grandmother. Edna died a little less than four months after Anna, with a clench of her hands and one word. Christopher. The nurses who worked the circuit of the care-assisted flats told the doctor who came to issue her death certificate that as they had seen so many times before, it was almost as if Edna had sensed she was going to die. Just as a cat will slink away to its death, quiet and dignified, unassuming beneath a tree, so Edna had, in her own way, prepared. Her rooms had been cleaned and her clothes packed with a glint of her job-done attitude that the priest would comment on to a chorus of polite snorts on the day of her funeral. I was, of course, never told of her death. Why would I be? My only connection with her was that she had a framed photo of me, seeming a little too ecstatic with the middle distance to be convincing, that she kept above her fireplace. All I knew of it was a kick, a strange protestation from my stomach at the very moment she died, while I was talking on the telephone with the general, explaining that she hadn't met my mother because she couldn't, because I didn't know where she was and was really okay with it now after a few years of being a bit messed up. The kick receded and something else rose up from deeper inside. Something good. Something that I had suddenly to share with the general. The doctor couldn't tell what Enna had died of. There seemed no suspicious circumstances, so she was assigned to the natural causes line and told to wait her turn. She had left little money and no children. No surviving children at least, so the manager of Greenoaks called in a clearance firm to empty her rooms for their new resident. There is, after all, quite a waiting list. Some of her clothes and all of her books they kept and sold, but everything else, from a tattered old photo frame to a grinning leather frog, they left out the back, bagged up in black polythene. It's strange that they never knew what she died of. That's the easy part. What someone is born of, that's usually more difficult. That was Adam Biles. Thank you for listening.